Amen. Amen. Good morning. Come on, Epiphany. Good morning. How are we doing today? Good. Y'all are quiet this morning. It is a real joy to be uh, around the body of Christ, proclaiming the works of Christ uh, this morning with you. Um, man, I'm so glad that you guys made it and got to weather through some of the road closures and public transportation uh, interruptions that were happening all across the city. Thank God you guys made it safely uh, so that we could come together and worship Jesus. You could worship Jesus in your house. I mean, you could have stayed in the bed and worship Jesus. Somebody's like, I should have stayed in the bed. Somebody right over in that section is not spiritual. I'm just saying. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but it's, it's something about gathering with the people of God um, that is just, I mean, you, you just can't, you can't, you know, one of the things about Christianity is when he did save us, he never saved us isolated by ourselves. But as soon as he saved us, he baptized us right into a body of believers. And we get to work that out and flesh that out through uh, the local church. And so I'm excited uh, about gathering this morning. Let me affirm and reiterate something that Gabe said, uh, one of the announcements that um, I don't want it to just be an announcement that sits up on the screen and then we go out of here and do nothing with. But the Have a Seat campaign really is an important campaign. I don't know if you guys heard him when he said that we have a partner that said every single chair you buy, I will match that chair. And so if it's $25 for one chair and you guys are sitting in them seats, y'all know they're not that comfortable. Um, but, you know, we have a partner that said, man, listen, I know the seats aren't that comfortable. No problem. If you buy a chair, I'm going to buy a chair. So if you think about it like this, you buy a chair for yourself. This person is going to buy the chair for the non-believer that you're going to bring in to hear the gospel message of Christ. And so this, is a, this isn't just like we're just throwing our money around. No, this is uh, us missionally trying to engage people by even something as simple as having seats in the place. And so uh, I'm really excited and I hope that you guys would consider buying uh, a chair or a whole row. Somebody should buy a whole row. And that would be a, a beautiful thing for us. So, um, yeah. And, and the Thanksgiving outreach as well. I just want to push that as well. We need your help. That is the day before Thanksgiving, November 23rd. We'll be here. We'll be giving out just free meals. I mean, we, we planted this church here to serve this community. And one of the ways we do that, uh, we're not selling chicken dinners. We're not, none of that. We're giving this food out because we want to see uh, a tangible way of how we can love the community beyond just saying, man, the gospel, the gospel. No, okay, let's put some shoes on that and see how that works in the community. So uh, you guys, seriously, be, be uh, thinking about how you can serve and how you can help. Uh, last thing I wanted to talk about really is more of a pastoral reflection in terms of uh, this Tuesday's election. Y'all know I stay far away from talking about politics, um, at least in the pulpit, for, for really one simple reason. We are a tax-exempt organization, and the IRS does not allow pastors to endorse um, any type of candidate. Not that I have a candidate that I would endorse anyway, uh, but whatever the case may be. Uh, Tuesday is bound to be a very... Um, uh, a day that's really going to divide the country in, in major ways and divide us in major ways uh, because I don't know if everybody's all in here voting Democratic or Republican. The point I'm trying to make is um, on Wednesday morning, God is still going to be on the throne. No matter who. In fact, if you read uh, Psalms chapter 2, I love how you're giving like all types of stuff in there. <laughs> 
like got me all over the place. Listen, don't turn here, but look, Psalms chapter 2 says this. Um, I I love this because this really fits exactly where we are. It says in verse number 1 in in Psalms 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Listen, the kings of the earth, that means the leaders of the earth, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, talking about Jesus. This is what they say. Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. But I love verse four. It simply says, he who sits in the heaven laughs. And so when you consider um, bad leadership, if you will, listen to me, God is in heaven and he's sitting there laughing. Not to mention that Proverbs tells me that the king's heart is like water in God's hands. And the church has always flourished. Christians have always flourished under uh, bad leadership, if you will. And so, um, listen, I I pray that everybody would get out and vote. Definitely saying, not saying don't vote. Don't, you know, I'm not saying stay home. But what I am saying is no matter what happens Wednesday morning, uh, we still have a God that's on the throne. And the God that's on the throne was not elected and cannot be impeached. So it's a good, it's a good thing that we have a secure foundation in God. All right. Uh, Luke chapter 20. If you guys could meet me in Luke chapter 20, we will be uh, going through verse by verse and line by line. Luke chapter 20. We are in our red letter series. This is our first Sunday in our red letter series. This is a very exciting series for us because, you know, one of our core values at the church is Christ centeredness, Christocentrism. It means everything we do, like the song said, is has Jesus at the center, not first, because if he's first, then I can do Jesus' thing and then get on to second and third and fourth. No, he's the whole thing. And so uh, this month, we will be in the words of Jesus Christ. Red letters simply means we are going to focus and study on the teachings of Jesus. So this month, we'll be in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We will not be in the Old Testament. We're going to focus on red letters. And red letters comes from when you go to most of your translations. Uh, If you go to the New Testament, you'll see that when Jesus spoke, uh, the words are in red. And so I tried to make a play on that. Uh, Luke chapter 20, verse number 9. We'll start in verse number 9. It says this, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. Verse 11. And he sent another servant and they also beat him and treated him shamefully. And he sent and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? What a crazy question. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, circle this phrase, surely not, with an exclamation point. But he, but he looked at them directly and said to them, 
What then is this that was written? He's about to quote Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I simply want to title this text, our time together today, Wicked Tenets. I don't have time to be creative today. That is what this text is about. (laughs) Wicked Tenets. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the ability to gather. Uh, We joked around, but I am grateful that you uh, brought us here safely. We can uh, arrive at places, and sometimes we just think that we just arrived just because traffic was okay and we were good drivers or, uh, or whatever the case. But the truth of the matter is we've only arrived here by sheer grace. It is nothing but your mercy and your grace that brought us here today. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is alive and it's active. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, I pray that you would convict us today, but also mend us together. In your gospel, we get to see that. Pray that Jesus is proclaimed uh, through his own words today. In Christ's name, we do give glory. Amen. Wicked tenants. A few years ago, a family lived in a beautiful house in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. A film crew uh, came up to to these, uh, these folks that were living in this house and said, can we use your, your location? We want to film an episode of a TV show. And so they're like, sure. So they brought cars on their lawn, and the cars are crashing into one another. The lawn is being torn up, and they get a call from New York from the actual owners of the house. Come to find out that the people that loaned this house out weren't actually the owners of the house. They were tenants in the house. And so the the owner calls them from New York and says, man, what is going on? Some crazy stuff can happen in property when you are a tenant and you start to think that you are actually the landlord, like you own it. The more valuable the property, the more responsibility that we have to take care of it responsibly. And this is what this parable is about today. It is about not just a landlord, but a gracious landlord and the wicked, wicked Tenets. This parable is not as famous as the prodigal son, nor is it as loved as the good Samaritan. But this parable is just as important for two reasons. Number one, because Jesus said it. Can we all agree that if it's read, if Jesus said it, it's probably important? Not to discredit the rest of the, the scriptures, but Jesus said this. So number one, it is important for that reason. The second reason it's important is because this is one of the only parables that looks back at the beginning of time, but also looks forward to something in the future that will happen. What Jesus says at the end of this parable hasn't even happened yet. And so many commentators will say that this is a prophetic parable. The other reason this parable is important because this is, on, this is one of three parables that show up in all three of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic gospels just means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These, Matthew, Mark, and Luke really are the synoptic gospels, which is where we see uh, similar parables that are, 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 they look similar, but they have a different take to them. This is one of only three that show up in all three of the synoptic Gospels. And today we are in Luke chapter 20, but I promise you I'm going to be reaching into Matthew because when it comes to parables, Bible 101, Bible study methods 101, when you read a parable, if it's in another book, never just gather all of your information from one parable. It's a reason that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke to write on the same account. 
When I was in school, I went to uh, Karen University, formerly known as Philadelphia Biblical University. When I was in school, I had to take a a class on the Synoptic Gospels, and they had us read a required reading material was a book called Four Portraits in One Jesus. And really what this book was helping us do was learn how to take all of the Gospels and bring them together. Because what people do is they say, look, Matthew has a different account of this story, and he does. Luke has a different account of this story. They're in contradiction. But I will argue that they're not in contradiction. They're just building on one another. So when I was in this class, they did this little illustration with us. They said, this is what we're going to do. There was about seven of us. It was an intensive course, so it wasn't many. It was about seven of us in the room. And they said, we're going to bring a young lady in the room for five seconds. And then we're going to send her back out the room. And when she comes in the room, write down everything you can see that you remember about her. Everything. And so she walks in the room and we start writing. And then five seconds later, she literally walks back out. And so the professor says, well, tell us what you saw. So some people are like, well, she had a red purse. Some people are like, well, she had brown boots. Somebody's like, she had glasses. She had a wedding ring on. She had a green scarf around her neck. But what happened at the end of that, us really saying every, everything that we saw, was that we got to get a complete picture because I only saw red boots. I didn't see the purse. I didn't see the glasses because I only had five seconds. But when you take all three of the Gospels, what we get is a complete picture of what Jesus is talking about. None of us in that class contradicted each other. No one said she had a green purse. No, she had a brown purse. No, we were consistent with each item. We just didn't have all of the items. And in the text, not only in Luke, but when we get into Matthew, you'll see that there's some additional information we can get from each of them. And that's just a little Bible study method for you. If you're reading a parable, never just read one. If it's in another book, read that one too and bring them together. And that is what we'll do this morning. I think it's important and I think you should know the characters in this parable before we walk through it. Because what will happen is if we don't understand who the characters are, you'll walk away and think that you're the owner of the vineyard. Can I, can I promise you that you're not the owner of the vineyard in this text? So let's walk through the characters. The characters are God is the owner of the vineyard. When Jesus spoke these words, his hearers would have thought about Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 describe to us, it literally calls God the owner of the vineyard. In fact, let me read it for you. This is, uh, this is what the prophet Isaiah says. He says in verse number 1, of Isaiah chapter five, let me sing for my beloved, uh, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted with the choice vine. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. So when Jesus is giving this parable, nobody in the crowd is confused on who he's talking about. Everybody knows that he's talking about God is the owner. So you're not the owner. We often like to do that when it comes to scriptures, especially stuff like the Good Samaritan. We want to say, hey, we're the Good Samaritan. No, we're not the Good Samaritan. Jesus is always the hero in the story. You're you're never the hero. If anything, we're the villain in the story. And Jesus always is the hero. So Jesus, uh, God, the father is the, the, the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard itself represents Israel. Same passage in Isaiah chapter five. They would have known that Israel was the vineyard. 
God's people was who God, the owner of the vineyard, planted. The wicked tenants represent the religious leaders. And this becomes clear to us in verse number 16 of our text. In fact, I didn't read verse number 19 where it says, just listen to this, same chapter. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Look at this. For they perceived that he told this parable against them. The religious leaders in this story are the, the, uh, the, the scribes and the religious leaders. So when, we're, when Jesus is talking about these wicked tenants, he's talking about them. Let's keep going. Two more characters that I like to, uh, that I think you should know about. The servant, the servants of the owners, the three servants that were sent, the ones that got beat up and sent away empty-handed, that would have represented the prophets. Look at the Old Testament prophets. They never were received. They always were rejected. They always were beat. They always were stoned. They always were killed. And so when Jesus gives this parable, he's saying the servants, the owner of the vineyard is sending his servants. He's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament. I don't think I really have to say this one, but I'll say it just in case we have someone who's really not familiar with the scriptures. The son that he sends or the heir that he sends, who is that? Always guess Jesus. You'll somehow be right when you're talking about Christ here. Jesus is the son that the owner sends. He says, I'm sending my beloved son. Surely they'll listen to him. So he sends his son. So now that we understand the characters, let us consider the passage together and walk through and see what the Lord will bring out of it. Verse number nine. And he began to tell the people this parable. Let me stop there and just bring this into context because the preceding verses we didn't read, the preceding verses talk about how Jesus is in the synagogue or the temple and it's a massive crowd there and scripture tells us that he's preaching the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel, the Bible says that there's people there now mixed within those people. Yes, it's Jews. Yes, it's Israel that is in the synagogue. But do you know who else is there? The religious leaders. How do I know that? Because verse one tells us that the chief priests and the scribes are there. And so when it says that he tell, told the parable to, this, to these people, he's not only talking about Israel, but he's talking about the religious leaders. And I'll go so far as to say that G, this parable isn't only to the religious leaders. This parable is about the religious leaders. And so Jesus walks through this parable as a response to them questioning his authority. When you get home, I, I would, uh, would ask you to read the whole chapter, especially read the preceding verses, because then we'll understand why he gave this parable. Jesus gives this parable because the chief priests, the religious leaders, the, one are, the ones that are supposed to be caring for the vineyard are questioning his authority. And so Jesus rolls right into these, these parables, right into these stories. And, and one of the things I love about Jesus is Jesus can tell you off with a story. Like, and, and it's crazy because when you hear the story, you normally laugh with him like, yeah, get him, get him. At the end of it, you're like, is he talking about, about me? I mean, I wish I had that skill. I wish I had that ability. Somebody, you know, say something, you know, outside, out the side of their face. Y'all ever heard that term before? Out there? You know what I mean? They say something you don't like. Somebody say something that you don't like. I wish I had that ability to say, you know, there was a man walking down a road. And another guy comes up and just slaps him. And at the end of it, you'll be like, you're the man walking down the road. And I'm the one that's going to slap you. Jesus had the ability 
to preach but tell stories. And at the end of the story, I mean, you think it's so simple. I mean, how simple is this story? Such a simple story, yet it has profound meaning. And everybody listening to Jesus would have known who the characters were and would have known who they were. And so basically what we're seeing is Jesus talking about a relatable story, especially in this time. Let's keep going. It says, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. Again, it would have been very, very relatable to them. Why? Because this was a, an agrarian culture. They had, to, they had to farm and make and raise their food. They didn't have food town. They didn't have a bodega across the street, which means they probably didn't have GMOs and the rest of the nasty stuff that we eat. Listen, they didn't have any type of supermarket that they could go to to buy food. No, they grew their own food. So when it says in verse number nine that a man planted a vineyard, this would have been very common language for them. And they would have known. But what I love about when I say all of the parables come together, Luke simply says that he planted a vineyard. If you read Matthew chapter 21, which gives the same story, it says he planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press and built a watchtower, which means the watchtower means somebody sat in it and protected the vineyard. And so when you look at this vineyard, this is not just some simple Vineyard, but the owner took precious time in making this vineyard. Chapter, verse number nine, and begin to tell the par- this parable, a man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants. Again, very common practice. This was very common in ancient times. A owner of a, of a vineyard, of a farm, could plant it and then rent it out to somebody and go away. The only catch was the person that was tenant that, w- that was the tenant that was caring for the vineyard knew that the entire vineyard wasn't his. They would have had to have a certain portion of the produce go to the owner. And so this was very common. Jesus isn't telling them something that's deep or profound. No, he's telling them something that they're probably doing on a consistent basis right now. And the scripture says he goes away to a far country for a long time. We know it was a long time because from the time he planted it, To the time he sent his first servant, crops had already grown. So this is months we're talking about. Let's keep going. And the story really preaches itself. So I'm just really reading and talking a little bit. And he went into another country for a long time. Verse 10. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit from the vineyard. Look at the expectation in the text. The owner of the vineyard does not send his servant to inspect or see if fruit has grown. He expects that fruit has grown. And he sends this servant there to gather his portion of the fruit. And and let let me just push that to you. If you're a believer in here, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are, you say God is, he's mine and I'm his. If that is your testimony in here, he expects fruit from you. He does not expect you to be barren. If he came to you right now and inspected you and sent his servant to get some of the fruit out of your life, would you be a barren tree? Or would you be somebody that is able to produce fruit based on the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the vineyard recalls the parable of the sower. Read the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower shows us that fruit is the appropriate response to God's word. So how you live out God's word is how God sees fruit in your life. 
And so is he going to come to you and then be able to see a fruit? There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. You can't love Jesus and not bear fruit. If we love Jesus, then we should be bearing fruit. My wife plants a, vi- a vineyard. My wife plants, uh, she normally likes to do t- all types of gardening. And, you know, we live in, in, in Bed-Stuy. The street I live on, I mean, I wake up to people smoking weed consistently. And she has in the front, you know, her little rows of vegetables. And she tries, it's the funniest thing to, to look at it. I mean, dudes across the street smoking weed like, yo, them some nice tomatoes you growing over there. It's just weird to, to see. But my wife, is, is, she's very serious about it. And when she plants, she always has an expectation that something's going to grow. And when she gets frustrated because nothing's growing, the frustration stems from unmet expectations. And so she's planting this stuff, expecting fruit. She wants to see tomatoes. She wants to see rosemary. She wants to see cucumbers. No vineyard planter would have planted anything and said, yeah, it's not going to grow. No, I'm going to take care. I'm going to water. I'm going to continue to to pour into this this season because I know that in the next season, I'm going to benefit from the fruit. So no no planter would have not expected, and God expects fruit from you. So if you're in here and you're like, I come to church. Listen, that's not fruit. Fruit is how you walk out. Based on the parable of the sower, fruit is how you walk out this word. And so are you bearing fruit? Verse number 10. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Watch what the tenants do. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. Now, this was already a breach of contract if the tenants didn't give him a portion of the fruit. That's already a breach of contract. But the fact that they beat him, that's an outrage. Like, it it was no reason. Like, even if you say, nah, I'm not giving you any of the fruit, that's one thing. But for you to beat the servant, this shows the wickedness of the tenants. And this word beat here is a strong word. It's a, it's a, it's in the Greek, it's called darrow. It literally means a full body pummeling. So this isn't, I pushed him over. This isn't, I slapped him on his head. This isn't, I cussed him out. No, they beat the servant. And they beat him mercifully. Any sensible human businessman would have immediately said, this, I would have been outraged about this. We would have had the police down there or we would have went down there ourselves and took care with our own squad and took care of these tenants. But Jesus doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Look at the next text. Because when I think about this, in my mind, I'm like, man, If I read verse 11, I know for a fact God's going to handle them, especially because God is the owner. Like this isn't just somebody that you can like, they can't beat the owner of the vineyard. And so I'm like, man, verse 11, surely God is going to like express vengeance all over them. But look at what he does. I love this. In verse number 11, and he sent another servant. Do you see the grace of our God? He could have wiped them out, got new tenants, and not he could have justified it. But he doesn't do that. He sends another servant. There was a young man that used to come to the, this church when we first started. And he used to always introduce himself as, I'm prophet so-and-so. And it was always the weirdest thing to me because I'm like, okay, what, is, like, what does that mean? Like, talk to me. I don't, I don't even know who you are. I'm prophet. Every single time I'm prophet so-and-so, God of the earth. And then I begin to realize that he found his spiritual 
uh, connection, his spiritual life, his identity was found in this title. He thought he was more spiritually mature because he called himself a prophet. But when I read the text and I told you that the servants that God is sending was the Old Testament prophets, I'm not running to the title prophet. Did you see what they did to the first prophet? Like, did you see what they did to the second prophet? Like, I'm not running to this. In fact, verse 35 of Matthew 21, I told you, let's bring these together. It doesn't just say that they beat him and they, he left, left uh, empty-handed, but Matthew 21 says that one was stoned and one was killed. And so when you consider the fact that the servants that the owner is sending, the prophets, when you understand that these are men that suffered for the cause of the kingdom. In fact, <coughs> excuse me. In fact, Isaiah, uh, if you look at Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, think about him. I mean, he wrote 66 chapters. Not only that, I mean, he stops the sun. So I think he has a pretty strong relationship with the Lord. History shows that he was sawn in two with a wooden saw. Like consider this prophet that did all of these things that wrote Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. We got to know what the cross was going to happen, what was going to happen on the cross because of this prophet. Yet the scriptures tell us that he was sawn in half. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about how some of the Christians were sawn in half. And many think that Isaiah was one of the ones that was sawn in half. Jeremiah consistently was mistreated thrown into a pit, and tradition says that Jeremiah would have been stoned. Think about these prophets. Ezekiel faced the same hatred and hostility. Amos fled for his life. He was always on the run. Zechariah was rejected and stoned. Micah was punched in the face. Fast forward all the way to our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, was crucified. And so when I hear, oh, I'm prophet so-and-so, I'm like, well, which prophet do you want to be? Because there's, like, if this was a resume, if somebody said, man, I want you to be a prophet, here's a resume, and I read Zechariah, and I read about Isaiah, and I read about Jeremiah, I don't want that job. I don't want that job. Look at what happened. He sends one of the prophets. They, they beat him. Matthew says they stone one. He sends a second prophet, which means that this is grace. Which also should say this should be convicting to us because, number one, if we were the owner of the vineyard, we wouldn't have sent the second one. Let's just be honest. After the first one, we would have handled things. And so in our lives, when people do you wrong, how quickly are you to forgive them? Like what we do is we want to hold grudges. We want to give you the silent treatment. We want you to feel what we felt. And the whole time you're holding a silent treatment, God is sending another servant. Like, think about you, like God in your own mess, in the things that you, how many times have you rebelled against God and God should have wiped you out? Again, often we think, man, I'm on Jesus' side in these parables. No, we would have been the wicked tenants and he would have sent another. Like, verse 11 should not read, I'm sending another servant. Yet, over and over again, he sends servants. Let's see what else happens. What happened to the second servant? Let's see if he was accepted. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully. I'm in verse 11. And sent him away empty-handed. Okay. What does he do? Now, surely, he's going he's gonna to handle this. Look at verse number 12. And he sent a third servant. This one also wounded 
and cast out. Like over and over and over again, God extends grace and mercy. Yet in our own relationships, over and over and over again, we extend wrath and judgment. Like how can we say, man, I want to be Christ-like. You know what Christ would have did? He would have sent another servant. And thank God he did that because most of us in this room need another chance. If not another chance, we need a hundred chances. Verse 11, he sends a second. Verse 12, he sends a third. And you would think that he's done here. But look at what he does in verse 13. Then the owner of a vineyard, he asked a question. This is crazy. He says, what shall I do? Like God didn't want me on his advisory team. Because if you ask me that question, I'm going to be like, well, you know, I thought you were actually soft on the first one. You probably respectfully, you, you should have sent somebody. I ain't talk to you like I ain't that bold. I'm just saying. I would have said, Lord, if you give me the moment to talk, uh, you should have handled it the first one. But he doesn't. He sends a second. He sends a third. This question, anytime God asks a question, it's always, it's always rhetorical. He's not looking for an answer. He's not. He's not looking for an answer. He's asking this question to show them something, to expose something else to them. So he says to them, what shall I do? This is why, but this is why I laugh at non-believers that say, man, God is angry. You, you serve a God that's angry. I'm on a chat with, uh, with some, some, on Facebook, it's a Facebook chat with some other people from different religions uh, predominantly Hebrew Israelites. And it's amazing, man, not just Hebrew Israelites, but all types of religions. It's amazing how people view God. They really view him as though he needs like anger management classes. But then I read texts like this and I'm like, wait, but he sent a second servant. Anger management says the first one he's done, but he sends a second and then he sends a third. And the story gets even crazier. Let's keep going through it. I told you it preaches itself. Verse number 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? So I guess he has an epiphany. I know what I'm going to do. I'll send my beloved son. I sent three servants and yet I'm going to send one more. But this one, I'm going to send my son. Because if I send my son, surely they will respect him. Something that's underneath this text that really holds to to some, some key theology that we believe in. Notice after the son is sent, Nobody else is sin. There's no other serve. There's no other prophets that need to come. We have an all sufficient prophet, priest and king in Jesus Christ. Nobody else needs to be sent. And so if you're looking for somebody else, remember when John was in jail and John sent his disciples because he was confused on, you know, why am I in jail for preaching the gospel? If Jesus really is the Messiah, the one that I baptized, the one that I said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. If he's really that Messiah, why am I in jail? He has a moment of confusion, sends his disciples to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Man, go back to him and tell him the blinded eyes are open and the, the poor have the gospel preached to them. The, the ones that are in chains, even though he's the one in chains, have their, their bonds bursted. He says, I'm the Messiah based on my works. Listen to me. John would have known after that there's nobody else coming. And so Jesus Christ is not just some person, but he is, <clears throat> he is the last one that we need. Hebrews 1, uh, verse 1 and 2 talks about this. Verse 1 through 3, it says, long time ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. 
in whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. Do y'all hear what they're saying about Christ? He upholds the universe by the very word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We need nobody else. He didn't send another servant. He didn't have another son and send him. He didn't say, well, one of the angels, I'll send one of them. He's done. He sent all we need. All we need is Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And nobody, let me just say this, man, nobody was ever born like Jesus. Nobody ever lived like Jesus. Like consider, think about people's life. Go through your phone and say, man, did this person match up to Christ? No. Nobody ever died like him. Nobody ever spoke like him. Nobody ever was risen like him. And the truth is nobody's coming back like him. He's enough. So stop searching for other gods. Stop searching for other things. Jesus Christ was the last one to be sent according to this parable. He is enough. He said, my works testify about me. Let's keep going. Where am I at? Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, this is, look how wicked these tenants are. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. This is crazy. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? So Jesus didn't ask a question. This is interesting that the tenants show how wicked they are because what they're saying is if we kill him. So there, there was this rule in ancient times that if no one claimed the land for three years, then the tenants that were uh, overseeing this vineyard were able to say, this is now my vineyard. And so they're thinking, man, they, the son doesn't, first of all, notice that they notice who the son is. They know who the son is. And so the religious leaders, they can say, man, we don't know him. At some point, they'll say, man, I know who Christ is. It's going to be too late, but at some point they will say, I know who Christ is. And so these tenants saw him. He doesn't say a word. The son doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, I'm here on behalf of my father to collect, you know, his portion. No, he doesn't say, why did you kill the other three servants. He simply shows up. They take him and they kill him. When it says they killed him, this is a pointer to the cross. This is a direct reflection of what was going to take place. Remember when I said this is a prophetic prophecy. Jesus is still alive in the synagogue telling this story. But they don't even, this is why Jesus' stories is so dope. Because underneath of what Jesus was saying was he was giving them a glimpse of what was going to happen to him. I'm going to go to the cross. And when he goes to the cross, he goes on your behalf. He goes on behalf of the people that mocked him, that beat him, that spit on him. Again, we often think that we wouldn't have been in that crowd. Most of us in this room would have been in that crowd. But yet Jesus Christ goes to a cross and dies on us, on our behalf. It says that they killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard, and what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, before we get to verse 16, <coughs> Verse 15 in Luke makes us think that they didn't respond because he asks the question and then verse 16, he answers. Jesus, uh, God, answers. But if you read Matthew's account, they actually do respond. Verse number 21, this is what they would have responded. So Jesus says, man, what shall we do to these wicked tenants? This is what they would have said in Matthew 21, verse 41. 
They said to him, he will put those wretches to miserable death and let the vineyard out the other tenants who will give him fruit in their season. It's very important that we understand Matthew 21, 41, because it shows us that the wicked tenants affirmed that the wicked tenants needed to die. Now, at this moment, they don't know that they're the wicked tenants, but they just affirmed it in Matthew 21, 41. They said, surely they need to die. They need to be, they need to die. We need to give this vineyard to somebody else. Now they're about to understand that they are the wicked tenants. Verse number 16, and he will come to the tenants and give the vineyard to others. <clears throat> and when they heard this, they said, surely not. This is the strongest negative in the Greek. When he says surely not, he was basically saying, they were saying no, 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 like may it never be. So they understood who they were in this story right here. Not to mention the word heard there isn't talking about just listening receptivity. No, this means they comprehended. It's the same word that's used in Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3 when it says, let him who has ears, let him hear. It's not talking just information. No, it's talking comprehension. It's talking, I, I, re, I receive, it's receptivity to what you just said. I got it. It's like a light bulb came on in these wicked tenants' minds. So they understood who they were. Look at what the rest of the text says. I love this because Jesus now reaches back, if you're taking notes, reaches back to Psalm 118, verse 22, and now quotes it. That's what, see, Jesus, when he preaches, we often think, first of all, he could just say a story and it's authoritative, but yet he leaned on the Old Testament. He leaned on scripture, which always amazes me when preachers get up and say, well, uh, open up the Bible and they read one verse and then they go over here, leave the authoritative word of God and preach opinion. But the scriptures show us that even Jesus Christ, the one that didn't have to, chose to lean and rely on the Old Testament. He's going to quote Psalm 118, verse number 22, which he fulfills the stone that the builders reject become the chief or the cornerstone. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on them, it will crush them. Jesus seems to give us imagery here. As I, as I end our time, he gives us imagery here of really what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 8 and what Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, the end of all things, the destruction. So those that reject Jesus, it isn't like, oh, he's going to kick them out of this vineyard and they're going to find another vineyard. No, they'll be destroyed. And so oftentimes, if you're in here, I don't know if someone brought you here today, if uh, you really don't know Jesus, if you lost a bet last night and they said, man, just come to church with me. And I, I don't know the reason that you're here this morning. What I do know is you can reject the servants and he allows it. But when you reject the son, it says the stone will crush you. I don't, I don't want to play this game like, oh man, no, it'll be okay. You know, maybe tomorrow, maybe you can trust them. No, tomorrow's not promised. Fulton is a busy street. You can walk out and be hit today. You may not even make it today. And so I, I, I do not want you to walk out of here and reject the son. If you're in here and you've trusted Jesus, you have the privilege of Jesus Christ, the one that lived perfectly 
33 years of perfection, never sinned, no deceit was in his mouth. I mean, obeyed the law 100%, which you and I are supposed to do outside of Jesus. Like, we don't need Jesus if we can obey everything. Can, can we be honest that we can't obey everything? And so Jesus doesn't say, man, you be a good person, I'm gonna allow you in. No, you have to be perfect. And in Jesus, we get perfection. Don't reject that Jesus. Don't, don't be like these wicked tenants and take that Jesus and reject him and kill him. Many of you in here have disobeyed the prophets. When I say that, I'm talking about the scriptures. Many of you in here haven't heeded to the word of God, haven't heeded to wise counsel. Guess what? You got a fresh start. The sun is sent to you today. And my hope and my prayer is that you would not reject him. It's, it's almost like, I don't know if y'all remember this, but remember that um, it, it, when I was younger, in the mall, they used to have these pictures. It used to be the little kiosk in the mall, and they used to have these pictures of like little weird shapes, like little dots. And the more you looked at it, you got to see like an image come into play, like a face or something. Anybody remember those things? Like something would just show up, and everybody would be like, oh, I see it. I see the face. Oh, I see Jesus. Oh, I see that. I never could see anything. I never, it always frustrated me. I think people, I thought they were lying. I never saw anything. And that is what the gospel is like. Some see it and some just don't. In fact, the scriptures tell us that the, the gospel is the aroma of life for some, but it's the stench of death for others. Do not reject the son today. Every head bow and every eye closed. <clears throat> Maybe you're in here. And that picture that I was talking about that's in the mall, maybe it's becoming more clear to you. Can I promise you that you need Jesus? Like if you don't know Jesus, if you have not trusted Jesus, you then have to go and stand and pay for your own sin. But if you've trusted Jesus, if you've given your life to him, then you get to stand as though you lived 33 years of perfection. And here's the truth. None of us in this room live one day of it. You didn't live one day of perfect life, but yet we get to be counted worthy. We get to be called holy and blameless and, 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 and spotless. And we're not. That's the good news of the gospel. Good news of the gospel is that you cannot work for your salvation. Here's the good news. You don't have to. Jesus Christ has already worked on your behalf. Don't reject him today. And so if you're in this room and you have not trusted Jesus, today's a good day. Don't let the next moment go by without you giving your life to Jesus. Nothing spooky, but if that is you, if you're in here and you're like, you know what, I went through the religious system. I'm just like the scribes and the Pharisees. Understand something about the scribes and Pharisees. Every head bow. Understand something about the, the scribes and Pharisees. A Pharisee would have had to understand and memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah. He would have had to know every verse. So they were religious people, and maybe that's you in here. My grandmother brought me to church. I'm okay. Years ago, I got up and said, excuse me, excuse me, and came up to the altar, and I repeated some prayer. 
Have you given your life to Jesus? And when I say that, I don't mean some, just some, yes, I did. No, I'm saying, have you submitted your life to him that he is Lord and that you've turned away from your own sin? Don't meaning that you're, I'm not meaning that you're spotless. I mean, have you turned away from your own sin and trusted in Jesus? If that's you, if you have not trusted Jesus, would you slip your hand in the air? Don't let this moment pass without giving your life to Jesus. Would you slip your hand in the air? We don't want to beat you up. We don't believe in scare tactics. Scare tactics don't save us. Jesus does. Would you give your life to him today? If there's no one, there's a second group I'd I'd love to pray for. Notice that the owner of the vineyard, which represents God, sent three different servants and then sent his son. What you got to see here was grace upon grace upon grace upon grace over and over and over again. And there's some people in this room that have not extended to family members, to friends, people that legitimately did you wrong. Can we all agree that the wicked tenants did the first servant wrong? But yet, In God's grace, he sends another. And some of you in here have not sent another. What you've done is you've extended wrath upon wrath, upon silent treatment, upon anger, upon I'm just not going to talk to you. If that's you in this room. And you know that you're not lining up with Christ's likeness, which is a gracious person. Would you would you slip your hand in the air? I'm not even going to invite you up. I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand in the air. I see those hands. If you know, I can hold a grudge. And people like legitimately did me wrong, but I struggle with forgiving them. Would you slip your hand in the air? I see those hands. Let me pray for you. Lord, the truth is we all struggle with forgiveness, which is crazy because If we've trusted in you, we've been forgiven. And so the motivation for us to forgive should be the fact that you forgave us. But yet, it's hard for us to forgive. I don't want to act like what was done to us wasn't hard. I don't even want to act like what was done to us wasn't the other person's fault. Maybe it was. But forgiveness today isn't for them. It's for you to be released. Lord, release us from bitterness. Release us from living graceless lives. We don't allow people to make mistakes, yet we make them. We want to we receive grace, but we want to extend the law. Forgive us, Lord. And I pray that these hands that were raised, that you would you would birth in them a sense of forgiveness that they would go to the person that did them wrong and say, you know what? We ain't talked in years, but I forgive you. I forgive you because Christ has forgiven me. We seem to think that we wouldn't have been enemies of Christ. No, we were enemies of him and yet he forgave us. I thank you for these hands and the boldness of them. And so Lord, would you work forgiveness and grace in their life? 
because forgiveness and grace was worked in our lives by sending Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.